has just used crew and used you guys in my life so profoundly in my walk with the Lord. And um, even just to be able to look out and say that so many of you have become such dear friends and you've taught me so much about the Lord and I've grown through our relationships. And so thank you just for um, being friends with me as I've been here. It's been awesome. And uh, uh, last week, if you were here, CJ spoke. And I was actually one of his interns in Brooklyn in 2016, so two summers ago. So I'm really glad you got to hear from him. Uh, he was, he's been so influential in my life. Um, and last week, he talked about racial reconciliation and unity and uh, compassion and justice and kind of how all of those are woven through the gospel even. And at the end, he mentioned love and how love kind of binds all of those together. And so that's what we're going to be talking about tonight is love. And how love is the root of compassion, it's the root of unity, and it's the root of justice. And I, I think I've really been learning a lot within the last year about what biblical love actually is. And it's been really painful and really hard, but really rewarding. And I think it's radically changed the way that I look at Jesus and the way that I look at other people. And obviously when I say the word love, I know there's going to be certain associations or images that are going to come into our minds, right? Probably romance or dating or Valentine's Day, whatever. And while that's totally normal and totally natural, I hope that as we read the word tonight, we'll be able to see love through different lenses, deeper lenses. And so I'm not saying that these same truths cannot be applied to dating or marriage because they totally can be. Um, but I'm hoping that we, that our thoughts about love kind of extend outward beyond just those one relationships. So specifically, what it looks like for us to love the world, um, just as Jesus has loved us. And so we're going to start with 1 John 4. That's going to be our main passage tonight. And I think that's up there. Cool. So I'll just read it, pray, and then we'll kind of dig in. So it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us, and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Yeah, Lord, we, we need you tonight. We need you to open up our hearts and open up our eyes to see what love is and to see the depth of love that was that you modeled for us through Jesus. I pray that you would remove barriers um, in our lives or in our hearts to understanding this with humility. And I pray that you would speak to us just, yeah, what the power of your love really is and how it affects us and therefore how we love other people through that. Um, and so we love you and we thank you um, for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, so starting off with this passage, love is obviously important to God, right? I mean, in verse 8 it says, Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And so love is not just an action that he bestows on us, but it's a characteristic of who he is, right? So God does not just have the ability to love, but he is love to the most perfect extent of what that word is. And so as believers, as followers of this God, we're called to display this characteristic to other people. But 
But in order to display this characteristic, I think it's important that we understand who other people are. The fact that all human beings are made in the image of God and therefore have inherent value and dignity. So Ann Voskamp, she wrote a book called The Broken Way, and I read it this year, and there's a quote in this book that says, seeing Jesus' presence in others is the secret to becoming like his presence to others. Maybe you can only be Christ in the world to the extent that you see Christ's presence in the world. And we only refuse to be like Christ to each other when we refuse to see Christ in each other. And so what is love? How is it defined? I think that Jesus' ultimate act of love was unifying us to the Father and giving us eternal life through the cross. It's the spiritual reconciliation with God that we're able to have. In verse 10 of 1 John 4, it says, This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us, and that he sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. But is biblical love limited to just the spiritual, or is it more than that? Is our love towards people more than just sharing the gospel? And I think the Bible would argue, yes, it is. As we see Jesus' ministry, he models love in a deep way that goes beyond just the spiritual. But it's practical. His love meets the earthly and physical needs of people. In John 13, 34 to 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so reading this, it kind of begs the question, well then Jesus, how have you loved me, if I'm supposed to love the way that you've loved me? And I'm going to argue that there are four main ways that Jesus loved us. Obviously, there's more than four, but for tonight, we're going to talk about these four. It's proximity, lament, action, and loss. So we're going to start with proximity. Proximity is this idea of getting close to something, right? So the closer I get to the stage, the more proximate I am. Sorry, edge of the stage. The closer I get to you, the more proximate I get to you. And so it's this idea that love moves towards people and not away from them. And Jesus got proximate to us through his ministry and through his death. In his ministry, he moved towards people in their physical needs. He bent down in the dirt with the woman who was caught in adultery. He went and sat with the Samaritan woman at the well. And he went to Zacchaeus' house. I mean, story after story after story, he models this. I mean, even Emmanuel means God with us, this idea that he's come to us. And then, yeah, in verse 9 of 1 John 4, it says, In this the love of God was being manifest among us, that God sent his Son into the world, so that we might live through him. And so it's a movement sending. He left his place of honor and prestige to walk with us. I mean, Christianity is the only religion in the world that says that God himself came down to walk amidst the injustice and pain and sin that we experience every day. And not only that, but his love moved him to die for those that he was proximate to. His death on the cross was the ultimate result of proximity. Proximity is really this idea of association, the fact that God chose to associate with me and my brokenness and my need, even though I had nothing good to offer him. And so this should lead us to get proximate to people out of love. Um, so I have a story. You can throw up the picture. Um, this may look kind of irrelevant. I'll explain. So like I said, I interned with CJ in Brooklyn, his uh, missions organization that he directs. Uh, and I actually ended up volunteering at an Arab American Family Center. 
periodically, and so it, it was basically an after-school program for elementary and middle school age uh, kids who are Arab Muslim, and they most of them have, had uh, immigrated from Yemen, but from other Middle Eastern countries as well. And so we would play games with the kids or uh, help them with their homework, maybe tutor them with English. Some of them could barely speak English at all. Um, and I remember the very last day, okay, so this was me trying to like write in the Arabic. They were like teaching me how, that's, I don't even know what it says, but it's my failed attempt. Um, so I remember the very last day I was walking out and I passed this table with a bunch of colorful posters on it. It was almost like the kids had done a craft earlier that day. And so as I walked over to look at the posters, you know, they're all different colors of construction paper and they've got glitter and stickers and stars and hearts and, you know, a little kid handwriting that's like barely legible and it doesn't, like nothing's spelled right, but it's so cute anyways, you just don't even care. Um, and when I got closer to actually read what the posters read, my heart just broke. Um, they said things like, refugees are your friends, not your enemies. And uh, you hate us because you ain't us. And uh, I mean, these kids are five and six years old, and they understood that their lives are not valued in this country. They understood that they are unwanted. And the reason why they are unwanted is because people don't view them with value. They don't view them as being made in the image of God. And so getting proximate to these Arab children is really what softens my heart towards their vulnerability. This is interesting. I found this out the other week. Um, studies show that our generation lacks empathy 40% more than any generation before us. And I would argue that social media and political news probably play a large role in that. I think media allows us to see the world at a distance. And so we think we know about the experiences of other people, even though we don't actually have relationships with them. We don't think we need to get proximate because, oh, well, I like, heard about that news story once, so like, I understand. Do we get proximate to collective issues in our day in which people made in the image of God are devalued and taken advantage of? Do we get proximate to individual people who are different than us just because you see their value? There's a quote that Tim Keller has in his book called Generous Justice, and it says, we instinctively tend to limit for those we exert ourselves. We do it for people like us and for people whom we like. But Jesus loved none of that. By depicting a Samaritan helping a Jew, Jesus could not have found a more forceful way to say that anyone at all in need, regardless of race, politics, class, or religion, is your neighbor. So not everyone is your brother or sister in faith, but everyone is your neighbor, and you must love your neighbor. So proximity has power in love. Second is lament. Lament is the emotion piece of love. Um, lament is feeling the weight of sorrow that other people have to endure because of pain or injustice. It's the concept that CJ talked about last week of weeping with those who weep. It enters into the suffering of other people, even if that suffering is not yours directly. Jesus lamented over the sorrow that we experience all throughout his ministry, but one example is just weeping. He wept over Lazarus' death, one of his friends. And so in John 11, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And so Jesus wept. So all throughout his ministry, Jesus' feelings of compassion over the pain of others made his love deep. 
understood this idea of weeping with those who weep actually until I met CJ. Um, so there's a picture of me and him and a homegirl Hales. This is last week um, when he came up on the bluffs. And so, yeah, like I said, uh, got to know him through my internship. And he actually mentioned this when he spoke last week, but 2016, uh, when I was there, there were a lot of police shootings against unarmed black men that had taken place all throughout the country that summer. And it took a really hard toll on him. And he showed a lot of grief over racism towards his community, and that was new for me. And so even though his family wasn't immediately affected by the shootings, he empathized and he mourned over it. And so as a sister in Christ to him, I learned through him what it meant to mourn with those who mourn. I didn't understand what he was experiencing, and I never will, but my heart was brought to a place of care and grief over an issue that I had never identified with before. I do think that relationships have power. And so learning how to lament in this one relationship with him enabled me to lament over large injustice issues of racism, um, like I said, that I had never experienced before. And so collectively, do we care about the sufferings and injustices that other people have to experience? Do we grieve over it? Or do we choose just to not engage and mourn because it's easier? I mean, for example, we understand the idea of grief when it comes to shootings in churches, right? Like what happened the other week in, in Texas. Because we can identify with them as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But do we grieve over issues of suffering that maybe we can't as easily identify with? You know, so do we grieve over the fact that, for example, women in pornography are often trafficked and coerced into that industry? Or do we just choose not to think about it because it makes it easier? Or as a white person, it would be easy for me to disengage from racial injustices that are happening in our country because it doesn't personally affect me as much. But will I make the deliberate choice to grieve and enter into the suffering of others the best way that I can, even though I don't understand? Individually, do we just sit with our friends who are struggling with difficult things and just empathize with them? We don't have to be serving impoverished orphans overseas to really be Jesus with this idea of lament because there are people who are in need of compassion and comfort all around us. And lament is really hard, if we're honest. Um, so Ann Voskamp has another quote from that same book that I mentioned. And there's been like a hair attached to my hair this entire time, so I'm like trying to flip it off. Um, so the quote said, maybe if your faith doesn't co-suffer with people, it isn't faith, it's cowardice. Love is a crawling in under the skin of someone else and connecting to their heart like it's yours. And yes, it will hurt, but it will heal. Yes, you must grow weak enough to love the world and get strong enough to let Christ carry your cross or you will be crushed by it. Love says there will only be abundance for me when there's abundance for you. So their vulnerabilities become ours. Their prayers become ours and their hopes become ours because love bears all things. This quote was originally talking about compassion, but I thought that it fit really well with love too. So are we quick to criticize the suffering of other people? Or are we quick to listen to people's experiences? Are we quick to debate whether the pain of people made in the image of God is legitimate or not? If it's worthy of our time or our compassion? And it's true that we won't fully understand the pain of other people, but grieving with them is necessary in our love for them. And Jesus' compassion led him to action. And so action is the third 
point. And so I have a picture of me and my younger brother, Christopher. I have another story. So he is a sophomore at the University of St. Thomas. I wish you guys could just know him because he's great. Uh, but my mom always shares the story about how when we were really little, my family had gone bowling one day. I think I was probably four or five, and he was two and a half, three. And I guess something happened, and I like accidentally bowled my ball into like the wrong lane. And I was feeling kind of, you know, like I'm five, right? Feeling kind of embarrassed, and there's people staring. And and uh, although I should say actually that I did go bowling last week, and I got like a 130, so I'm not still that bad. But all of a sudden, I look over, and Christopher, at two and a half, three, is like sprinting after this bowling ball to go get it for me. He's like running down the bowling lane, and of course, it's so slippery, right? So he just like wipes out and slides all the way down. And, uh, you know, my parents are kind of like, oh, that's so sweet, so cute, but I'm so sorry, you know, get the kid back. You know, everyone's kind of watching us. And, um, and it's a silly story, but I just think about that because I'm like, there was something in Christopher's mind at two and a half or three years old, where he he made this connection of, okay, Joel, the, the ball is not where it's supposed to be, right? Something happened, and Joel is feeling sad, <gasps> and, and I love her, and so I'm going to go rescue what was lost, right? I'm going to go get this for her because I love her, and I care that she's sad about this. And so it's silly, but in the same sense, I think that's true, that love naturally motivates us to act. It drives us to act. And so... I mean, he wanted to retrieve what was lost for me. And so love's most natural response after seeing something wrong and feeling sad over it is to act on it. Jesus displayed love through action, both in his ministry and in his death. In his ministry, he didn't just tell people about eternal life and leave, but he fed the hungry, he healed the sick, he gave sight to the blind, and he washed the disciples' feet. And then in John 13, 14, he says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. His death was itself an action of love. He gave his own life for the restoration of other people, even for those who were his enemies and didn't want anything to do with him. In Romans 5, it says that, But God shows his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So yeah, the most natural response of biblical love after it gets proximate and it laments over suffering is to act. It desires to stop injustice and provide for the needs of others as being made in the image of God. So collectively, do we spend more time debating over whether an individual or group is worthy of our assistance instead of just acting to help them? The Washington Post actually did a really interesting article on faith groups in the U.S. being absent in the fight against poverty in our country. And so Robert Putnam, he has a quote, and it says, large numbers of Americans are very religious and take religion seriously. And if they came to see that their religious obligations required more positive action on social justice, they would do something about it. That's not just the hopes of some disappointed secularists, it's just the facts. When the faith communities have throughout history taken inequality seriously, the country has moved in a positive direction. So are we giving of our time and resources to invest in people who are hurting and are experiencing suffering? Love doesn't just look out for its own interests, but it elevates the interests of others as seeing them better. And Jesus connects our actions of loving people with loving the Father consistently 
throughout scripture. I mean, I just have one example in Matthew 25. Jesus says, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, you did to me. So if our God is a God of action, demonstrated through Jesus' life and death, we also ought to love out of action for others and their earthly needs. The fourth one is loss. Love requires us to sometimes lose our preferences, our comfort, and our desires. Love required loss for Jesus, both in his ministry and in his death. He was willing to lose a reputation with the Pharisees as he loved people who were in their eyes undeserving of love. So as he got proximate to the social outcasts, as he had compassion on people's needs, as he served, he was viewed negatively by the Pharisees. And he also died, ultimately, so that he could experience unity with God. And so love required him losing his life. So I'm going to play, actually Kevin's going to play, um, a two-minute video or clip, actually, from The Passion of the Christ. Um, for those of you who are at Lightbox, you've seen this clip. Um, and for those of you who have just seen this movie in general, it's a really hard, graphic, difficult movie to watch. I think it's necessary, because I think when we talk about love, we don't really understand what it actually costs Jesus to love us in this way. Um, and so, yeah, like I said, two minutes, and then we'll kind of come back.
think, at least for me, I used to view love in a very cheap, fluffy way. I, I even used to think that in the church, the constant rhetoric of God's love was almost an excuse for sin and disobedience. But I think when we actually think about what love is and in the way that Jesus modeled and what he experienced, love is, is hard and it it's, has depth to it. So I'm not saying that we'll be crucified like Jesus, obviously, in our love. Uh, but his love came at a cost. And so are we willing to experience loss in order to show love to other people? I mean, when 1 Corinthians 13 says that love does not insist on its own way, we read that like it's easy, but it's not. Proximity involves losing comfort sometimes. Lament chooses to co-suffer with other people, which means that you lose the convenience of just focusing on yourself. And action can be hard work. It's service and it requires sacrifice. And yeah, loss is painful and it requires denying our rights, denying our preferences, and denying our conveniences. And for Jesus, the people that he most opposed were the Pharisees, but why? It's because they didn't get proximate, because they viewed themselves more highly than other people. They didn't lament or care about the pains of other people. They only cared about what other people could produce, right? They only cared about the religious actions of other people and whether they could follow the law or not. They did not model action and love through sacrifice for the needs of other people. And the Pharisees were not willing to lose their positions of prestige and honor for others. And so in a similar sense, why don't we love people in these four ways? I mean, there's lots of reasons, but I would say the main one is that we're selective in our love. We only love when it's easy. We love when we benefit or we gain from it, when it's comfortable or it's convenient. And if I'm honest, it's easier for me to talk at somebody than to actually enter into someone else's suffering. I mean, I'll just be really honest, this, I'm not proud of this by any means, but before going to New York for the internship, and I knew it was a service-based internship, um, but I remember telling my roommate Katie, you know, service just really isn't my spiritual gifting. I'm just more of an evangelist. And God used New York City to humble me and to make me aware, really, in a painful way of my arrogance and my ignorance towards vulnerable people. I thought that I cared about the plight of other people, but at the end of the day, I just didn't at that point. And I think, too, as we talk about politics, I think our love is sometimes limited to certain groups and certain situations instead of looking to Christ's example of love. And if Christ is our Lord, not just our Savior, but our Lord, it means that we submit everything underneath him and what he modeled for us. And that includes how we love and who we love. So why do we love in these four ways? It's because we're recipients of Jesus' love in these four ways. We love out of the abundance of what we've already been given. I mean, in verses 19 and 20 of 1 John 4, it says, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And so we seek to show love to other people made in the image of God and walk alongside their brokenness because 
Christ chose to bestow love on my brokenness. He chose to associate with my humanity and my pain, too. And so we love others, ultimately, too, to point them to Jesus because of the gospel, because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, because of his love. And, you know, we will constantly fail at showing love to people in these four ways. Because we view people made in the image of God incorrectly, because we are selfish, we do withhold love from others who we don't deem worthy, even though Jesus didn't withhold love for me, even though I was completely unworthy. And, you know, I am fearful to get proximate. I am selfish in lamenting over the suffering of other people. I am a coward when it comes to action. And I selfishly don't want to sacrifice for other people because that kind of love is really hard. And so therefore, what is our ultimate hope in? Not in our own ability to be loving to others because it's imperfect, but our hope is in Christ's perfect ability to love others. And so we point people to him because our love is flawed and his is not. And you know, we do need the Holy Spirit to help us love in these ways. We need God to give us courage to get proximate. We need God to give us compassion to lament with others. We need God to give us bravery to act when it comes to injustice. And we need God to give us humility to experience loss in order to love others. And you know, when the pressure is actually off to be perfect in love, we can do it more freely. We're actually free to love out of the abundance of love that we've received from God. And so relying on the Spirit to love moves us off of this treadmill of performance and pressure, and it actually gives Christ the stage as we watch in awe at the perfection of his love for us, and then we can just do it freely. And also remembering, too, that we were the hopeless and in need of love, and Christ got proximate to us. He lamented over our needs and our pains. He acted to help us in our need. And he lost his life ultimately so that we could share in his abundance. Um, so actually, the band, you guys can come up. But we are going to be uh, singing a song, hopefully, um, called Reckless Love. And uh, we have sung this a couple times in crew and at Fall Retreat. And I was listening to it in the car the other day, and I thought that the lyrics... Um, when I stopped to actually listen to them were powerful, I think they applied to this idea of love really well. Um, so I'm just going to read the chorus and the bridge, and then I'll pray. It says, Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it, and I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, Reckless love of God. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Lord, we, we thank you that you chose to love us in these ways that you did choose to come to us even when you didn't have to. You got proximate to our needs. Thank you for even just feeling the weight of pain that we experience and caring about it and suffering with us. Thank you for acting to meet our physical needs and through the cross so that we can have eternal life through Jesus. 
thank you that you were willing to lose on our behalf so that we could experience this reconciliation with the Father that gives us this eternal life. And so we do plead that you would help us to see how we can do these things, um, that you would give us the spirit to do these things because we can't do this on our own. Um, yeah, we love you out of the love that you've given us. And so we thank you for your son and we praise you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.